word of prayer with the Lord. Father, we thank you for bringing us here once again on this cold night. We're grateful that we can open your word together. We're grateful that it continues to change us because it is your word. Your spirit leads us in truth and changes us into Christ's likeness as we walk by faith. And so we're grateful that we can understand. We're grateful that you help our understanding, illumine our minds and cause us to know what it means by what it says. So we ask for your attendance upon our time. We're faithful to do that. Lord, help us to grow by it for your glory. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, I want to return tonight to uh, continue to look at the doctrine of the atonement as we have, hopefully, potentially, finish up our look into it tonight. We could probably spend... I don't know, the next year, two years really on this doctrine, trying to exhaust everything in any detail and every verse that even intimates anything concerning the atonement. But I want to try to maybe finish it up tonight. But over the past several months, we have been attempting to answer the age-old question or the question which many people ask, for whom did Jesus Christ die? When we talk about the atonement and the controversies over the years between what is known out in theological circles between an unlimited view of the atonement or a limited view of the atonement, they're really trying to answer the question, for whom did Jesus actually die? In other words, did Jesus die for all people without exception? In other words, there's a universal atonement in that Jesus died and paid for the sins of all people who have ever been created? Or did Jesus die for all people without distinction? In other words, all of those whom God has chosen to save from every tongue, tribe, and nation. So without exception equals a universal atonement for all. When we say without exception, that's what we're talking about. And without distinction is equal to what you might read in some books or in some theological uh, systematic theologies as a particular or a definite atonement for only the chosen of God. The answer to those questions has taken us down some theological roads as we have tried to deal with this subject, and we began by answering those that question with another question, one that kind of hones it down, at least at the beginning, so that we and understand the direction that we're going, or at least get a clearer way to answer that question biblically. And the question that we were asking secondarily in order to help us answer that first question is, well, if Christ died for people, what did Christ accomplish when he did die on the cross? What exactly was accomplished by Christ's death? And when we understood that and understand that, then we can begin to answer more clearly the question, for whom did he die? <clears throat> and it would help us then narrow down the answer to our first question. And we learn that the Bible teaches in both the Old and New Testaments about what Christ accomplished on the cross by means of his death was that he accomplished redemption for whoever it was that he died for. He accomplished reconciliation for whoever it was he died for and He accomplished propitiation, the fact that God's wrath is appeased. 
So that is not all that Christ accomplished through his death, obviously. There is much more that he accomplished by way of the whole package of salvation that is brought through Christ. But when it comes to the atonement, these three things stand out as actual realities being accomplished according to the eternal decrees of God. God had determined in the eternal decrees of the Godhead to accomplish a salvation by means of the death of Christ, which meant that in the death of Christ there had to be a redemption, a reconciliation, and his wrath had to be appeased. Therefore, we came to understand from those terms then that when Jesus died on the cross in time, because before the foundation of the world, the decrees were determined in the mind of the merciful mind and heart and wisdom of God, but in time Jesus came, and in time Jesus died on a cross. And when he died, he was actually carrying out what had already been determined, what had already been, in fact, in the mind and heart of God, and accomplished reality by the Godhead for those whom God saves. And since that was the case, and the Bible declares each of those realities as actual through the death of Christ and because and on the basis of, then all whom are saved then are actually redeemed. They are actually reconciled to God and the wrath of God has actually been appeased. And I'm using that terminology very purposefully in order that we don't misunderstand because many people would say that it was a potential that people are potentially redeemed, potentially reconciled, and potentially have the wrath of God appeased, but they need to then believe. And of course, salvation comes by faith. But did Christ accomplish those things in reality on the cross, and for whom did he accomplish those things is what we're talking about. And therefore, we further concluded in our understanding of what the Bible teaches about those truths that God can never lie. First of all, we understand that about the character of God. God does not lie. He cannot lie. It would go against his very nature and character to say anything that would be a lie. And then either, then the two options are either all people without exception universally must be saved if Jesus actually accomplished those truths for all without exception. If Jesus died actually, if he redeemed and reconciled and propitiated the wrath of God for all people without exception, then therefore, since God cannot lie and God cannot go against himself, then therefore all people must then be saved. Or, or only God's chosen are saved without distinction through the death of Christ. In other words, he saves some from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And that was in the heart and mind of God at the very beginning. So is the atonement through Jesus Christ universal, or is it particular? Well, by means of our own human experience, by means of us who walk on the face of this earth in time, in the time that God created... By the means of our own human experience, we know that it surely can't be universal in actuality. Salvation cannot be universal in actuality because we know both in the Scriptures and throughout our own very lives, by way of the experience of our very lives, we know people who have never come to a saving knowledge of God. 
We know people who have passed from the face of this earth after walking their life on this earth and rejecting God completely until their very last breath. We read in the Scriptures of those who rejected Jesus Christ. Those who refused to believe. Probably the most notable person in all of the Scriptures that we would come, have come to mind who rejected Jesus Christ and thereby we know He is not saved is Judas. Judas certainly is not a saved person having betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ into the hands of wicked men and never repenting. And so we find ourselves in a theological dilemma. I, I didn't know if you came here tonight thinking that your mind would be stretched as far as we're going to stretch it, but open up your mind because we're going to stretch it a little bit because here we are in this theological dilemma. Right? If Jesus actually died for every sinner, then the reality is, because by way of our personal experience and by way of what the Scriptures say and by way of just Judas himself, there are sinners who spend all, uh, all an eternity in hell even though Jesus paid the penalty for their sin. If He actually died for everybody. So either God is a capricious God and says one thing and does another, or God and Jesus are opposed to each other, or the death of Jesus only filled up a bucket of potential salvation that could be disseminated by God if, on the basis of, by chance, someone would turn to God. But we understand from the Bible that because of sin, it's impossible for man to turn to God on his own. It's impossible for man to believe in God by his own nature. The Bible tells us that, that God has to do something for man to believe. Therefore, we read words in the Scriptures like chosen and elect. Words that seem to indicate that, that there is a sense in which the universal reality of what some may say is the reality in the atonement seems to not be the case, or there is a confusion in my understanding of the word elect or chosen. That the believer is those who have been chosen by God. And that, that choosing by God took place before the foundation of the world, before anyone was ever created. And since redemption and reconciliation and propitiation are all spoken of in the Bible as actual realities, since the Scriptures are God's Word, and they're spoken of as actualities rather than potentialities, then it seems rather clear that the Bible teaches a particular or definite atonement rather than a universal atonement. In other words, Jesus died only for those who were chosen before the foundation of the world unto salvation through faith in Him. You say, oh good, well we'll just dust our hands off and move on, but that doesn't end the dilemma. That doesn't end our dilemma. Why? Because there are passages in the Scripture that seem to say that Jesus died for all people without exception. That's what we began to look at last time. That's what I want us to finish up with tonight. A few passages that 
we'll stretch our minds. And yet at the same time, I, I don't think will be all that difficult for us to understand once we look at them as we ought. So the, turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Some of Paul's final words in his ministry to his protege in the faith. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, we find one of these passages that has caused so much confusion with so many over time when it comes to the atonement. There's been a whole lot of debate over what the Bible says here in 1 Timothy 4 as it focuses its attention on the phraseology of verse 10. Notice what it says. For it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. So even though we have found out that redemption and reconciliation and propitiation are taught in the Scriptures as actualities, and that Christ accomplished those things through His death on the cross, and that we have in our sense come to the conclusion in our minds and our hearts that the Bible teaches a definite atonement, that Christ did not have a universal atonement. Here we go. We read the Scriptures. We read the New Testament. And maybe we've never come across it before. In all, all the sense, we read this verse that says He's the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Right off the bat, you notice that this verse does not say anything about the death of Christ in any direct way. So why has this verse caused so much trouble when it comes to the doctrine of the atonement? Because it uses that phrase. Paul saying, we fix our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men. He is the Savior of all men. So again, just like last Lord's Day, in order for us to understand what Paul is saying, we must take those two principles that I gave you last Lord's Day and apply them to the text. And the first principle was context, and the second principle was the analogy of the faith. We'll take the second one just first, really quickly. Analogy of the faith says that whatever Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 10, whatever Paul is writing to Timothy in this issue about Christ, it cannot contradict any other teaching in Scripture cannot contradict our clear understanding of what the Bible teaches about salvation. So what is Paul saying here? Is he saying that God is the Savior of each and every person who has ever lived? Because on the surface, that seems to be, at least in some sense, how Paul is speaking with the words he is using. Is that what he is saying? Well, certainly we cannot answer the question with a yes, at least not with an unequivocal yes, at least if we are talking about salvation in the sense of 
having a life in Christ that is secure before God for all eternity. We cannot be talking about that kind of salvation, at least in that sense, because to do so would be to clearly contradict what the Bible clearly says in other texts. You say, what text? Well, texts like Jesus' prayer in John 17. This is the Savior. This is the one who knows whom He is saving. This is the one who says, my sheep know me, and they know my voice, they hear my voice, they follow me in John 10. This is the one who will die on the cross. And here he is praying to the Father, and he prays for only those who are his own and not for the world. Jesus limits his prayer to those whom are his own whom he saves. His own. Not the world universally. And surely Jesus, being God incarnate, wouldn't simply, if He was dying for all people in a saving kind of way, in a spiritually saving way, He certainly wouldn't be only praying for some if He was saving all. But we understand this passage according to the context and the analogy of faith. First, we understand that the Apostle Paul was continually fighting against the idea of Jewish exclusivism. The idea that Jews in their mind believed and thought that God was only for them. That God was their Savior, their Savior alone. Paul, all the other apostles, as you read through the book of Acts, clearly show this reality that God, even in the beginnings of the church, was showing the Jews that He was not simply just for them. That had somehow gotten ingrained in their minds through their own selfish ideas about themselves. And so Paul is always fighting against that. The idea that God only saves Jews. And so Paul, like other Scripture writers, has this on his mind, the refutation of that reality to the ethnic people about salvation. But also we can understand that the original word here in verse 10 for Savior carries with it the meaning of deliverer or preserver. Deliverer or preserver. And the analogy of the faith principle shows us that God is the preserver of all men universally. God indeed is the preserver of all men universally. In fact, notice how Paul refers to this. Go back to Acts chapter 27 for a moment. Notice how Paul uses this word in this way. This is the very same author writing to Timothy. And in Acts chapter 27, Paul is about to have the ship that he's on destroyed by the the reef because they're now adrift in the water as they're trying to take Paul to Rome. They've been fighting the storm for two weeks. And in verse 34, notice what Paul says. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food. This is Paul standing up in the midst of this as they're getting rid of everything and they're about to lose their own minds about it because they're 
the ship is going to be destroyed, Paul stands up to encourage them, take some food, for this is for your preservation, for not a hair from the head of any of you shall perish. The word preservation there is the word soteria. It is the word we use for salvation. The original word for salvation. And yet here, the translators understand it. Paul is using it in such a way that simply says, listen, you need to take some food. You need to strengthen yourself in this battle. You've been fighting it for two weeks. You're not going to die. This is for your salvation. This is for your preservation. So Paul is not speaking in Acts 27 of spiritual salvation. He's not saying, listen, if you eat this food, you're going to be saved eternally. No, he's talking about their physical lives, their physical lives being preserved from dying in the wreckage. And of course, Acts tells us that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. God is a Savior of all men in this way. He preserves all people on this earth in their earthly life for as long as the wisdom of God and His counsels and His desires and His purposes do so. But he is the particular savior of those who believe. Notice how Paul says this in verse 10. He is, we we have hope in the living God who is the savior of all men. He is the preserver of all men. He is the sovereign God who is over all things and over all men, but he's especially or particularly the savior of believers. So God is the Savior of all men in a physical way, but He is particularly or especially, you could even use that word there, He is especially, as the New American Standard writers have put it, He is especially the Savior of those who believe unto salvation. So God has a special relationship with those whom He has chosen by faith, or chosen to believe in Him by faith. So this is what Paul is saying to Timothy here in 1 Timothy chapter 4. So we need not be confused by that. We need not be confused that the Apostle Paul is saying in some way that Jesus is the atonement for all men salvifically. It's clear from this text, it's clear from an understanding of the analogy of the faith, and clear from the context that that is not what Paul is meaning at all. He's simply saying that God is a sovereign God who is over all, who cares for all men, and yet He is especially the Savior of those who believe. Then Paul says, pay, pay close attention to these things, verse 16, to yourself, to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Paul is simply saying, listen, only true truth saves. Take care. Say what's right. Say what you need to say. Do what you need to do. And when people follow that, God honors it. Let's look at another one. Let's look at another passage. Go over to one that we saw some months ago or several weeks ago in 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. Verse 
We were studying through this passage before I said that I would be returning to this in our atonement study, and so I wanted to get back to that so that we were not confused about this, because this is one of those verses that has given many trouble when it comes to answering the question concerning the scope of the accomplishment through the death of Christ. For whom did Christ die? Why is it giving him trouble? Because notice what it says. Verse 1, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And you notice, I I kind of emphasize the words that we're going to hone in on, that phrase, the master who bought them, denying the master who bought them. It's difficult because Peter is describing false teachers. He is describing those who speak lies in the church. False teachers who have attached themselves in some way to the things of God and claim to be those of God and yet are not those of God at all. These are false teachers. And so some will come along, some in theological circles come along and say that it's obvious that Christ paid for those who even reject him. But while some may say, well, Christ doesn't die for those whom, who do not believe, they turn to passages like this and say, well, then what do you do with this? Because obviously these people are not believers, they're false teachers, then how can they deny the master who bought them? They may be denying him, but it's clear that he bought them. False teachers being those who are obviously not saved. We know that from verses 12 through 19 of chapter 2. They are unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed. They're reviling where they have no knowledge. Right? They will in the destruction of those creatures. They'll also be destroyed. They're suffering wrong, the wages of doing wrong. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They're stains and blemish. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. We know these are unbelievers. That's what we're talking about. That's what Peter is clearly talking about. And so some come along and try to say that Peter isn't using the term bought to mean salvation. They try to get out of it by saying, well, the term bought here doesn't mean saving in the sense of salvation, much like Paul didn't mean savior in the sense of salvation in 1 Timothy 4.10. Well, uh, you know, that's... That's one way to try to do mental gymnastics around this, but that understanding has a lot of problems. Why? Because the most glaring problem of it all is that it's going to violate the analogy of the faith principle. In other words, if we don't understand this term bought in a way of saving, then it violates the analogy of the faith principle. And so if it doesn't mean bought in a saving way, then we need to find places in the Bible where that term is used in such a way in which there are no incidences or which there are incidences in which it is used in that way. And the reality is that when you scale the Scriptures and you look through the New Testament, there are no incidences in the New Testament where the original word for bought, when it's associated with the death of Christ, like it is here, 
where it is used in a non-saving way. It always has a salvation meaning. For example, 1 Corinthians 6.20, Paul says, for you have been bought. Agorazo, that's the word. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. He's talking about your salvation. You have been bought by the death of Christ, the price of Christ. Christ redeemed you through that payment. Right? We talked about redemption at length. Or Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed, ex agarazzo. He redeemed us from the curse. The curse of the law, He became a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So He, he saved us out from the curse. That's the idea, ex agarazzo, the the prefix on that term meaning called out from or took us out from. So He redeemed us. He he bought us out from the curse. Once again, it's salvation being spoken of there. Yet it's using the term redeemed or bought. That's the idea. So to say that the word bought is being used in an opposite way that it's always being used in Scripture cannot be our conclusion. We cannot say in 2 Peter chapter 2 that this word isn't at least in the mind and heart of Peter being used in a salvation way. And others come along and say that they were bought in a salvation way. Okay, they're bought in a salvation way, but the false teachers, like we're reading about here, they just fall away from the faith. In other words, they were truly redeemed, Christ actually redeemed them, but they turned their backs on Christ, who they had at one time embraced. And so if that's the meaning, then again, we have a problem because Jesus himself said, all that the Father gives me, I lose how many? None. So if they were redeemed at one point and then they fell away, then Jesus is lying when he said that. And Jesus and God the Father have no power to keep those whom they say they were saving. They can kind of get out when they want to get out. If they want to pull the ripcord, they can do that. They don't want to have this anymore. And there's a whole lot of other verses that we could go to that proclaim the same truth of John chapter 6 and verse 39, where all that the Father give me, I lose none. And so then some try to deal with that problem by saying that we were bought in the sense of in the sense of potentiality. That it was a potential purchase. That it was a real purchase, but filled up a bucket of potentiality. In other words, salvation is available because Christ purchased salvation for all people. It's available if you would simply just believe. Well, that's why we started our entire study in answering the question, what did Jesus accomplish through his death? Because once we understand that, then we can even more clearly understand for whom did he do it? And as we learned, if redemption and reconciliation and propitiation are actualities, as the Bible clearly declares, if they are accomplished in time, what had been eternally decreed in eternity past, then that removes the idea of any kind of potential reality. In other words, since it was actual for those whom God chose in eternity past, because of His decree and 
seen because of the Godhead as already finished because in the mind of God when he decrees it it's as good as done then the death of Christ in time was simply the actual accomplishment of that decree only for those whom God actually chose to save. But that still doesn't answer the question for us then in what way were these false teachers bought? Because if Peter is talking about salvation in, a, in the sense of this term meaning salvation and not meaning some other way, then in what way were they bought? If they can't lose their salvation and if redemption is an actuality and they were bought, then they weren't actually bought because they didn't know Christ. They can't fall away from salvation. Then what, does, what is Peter trying to say? Well, we remember in this very text, and remember for all texts, the king for our understanding is context, right? Context. Context is king. And in verses 20 and 21, it give us a glimpse into the nature of these false teachers, right? For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, how? By the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, then the last state has become worse for them than the first, for it would have been better for them to not have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. This is the character of false teachers. They are those who do have the knowledge of the Lord in the sense that they have been introduced to the gospel they have, and even through that knowledge, they have helped clean up their own lives by their own personal reformation. And yet, in the end, they return to their old ways. They turn their backs on what they know about Christ. In other words, they never were true believers. They never were true believers. They heard of Christ. They heard of the gospel. They knew, in fact, that He is the Savior. They even looked good for a while as they attempted to clean up their lives. But in the end, they returned to their old, wicked, worldly ways because they're unsaved. Now, how does that help us understand verse 1? How does all that help us understand verse 1? Well, it helps us because it reveals to us that Peter is using the reality of this concept of salvation, or he's using this salvation language in, in what some call a phenomenological way. A big word, phenomenological. You say, what do I mean? I mean he is speaking of them in the sense that by their very life, by their very, but for a time at least, by their very life, it appears that they are true that they were bought by the Master. But they never belonged to Christ. They appeared to have known the righteous way of life, but they never were truly saved. Now, if that's the context, if that's how we were to understand it, then we ought to think, okay, does analogy of faith show that out? Does the analogy of the faith show that in other places in the Scripture? Do we have evidence of that kind of phenomenon in other parts of the Scriptures? And the answer to that is yes. 1 John uh, I didn't put the chapter here, but it's in 1 John 
verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. Either chapter 1 or 2. Or John chapter 2, verse 23 and following, when it says, many were believing on Jesus, right? Jesus was going around. He just did the miracle in Cana of Galilee and turning the water into wine. He's going around doing miracles. And many were believing on him. In verse 23 of John 2, it says, many are believing upon Jesus. Now that's a salvation word. That word is pistis. It means faith. Many had faith upon Jesus, but Jesus wasn't entrusting himself to them. That same word, entrusting, means belief, faith. It's the same word as believing. They were believing in Jesus, but Jesus wasn't believing in them. Why? Because he knew their hearts. It was a phenomenon. They said they were believing. They were intellectually believing, but they weren't saved. And of course, we could always turn to Matthew chapter 7 and verse 23, where in the last days men will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do miracles in your name, cast out demons in your name? And Jesus will say to them, away from me, I never knew you. Jesus, we did this. We talked about you. We attached ourselves to you. We we." We cleaned up our life. Our life was was apparently looking like it followed you, and yet you say you never knew us. There was never a relationship there. There was never any real saving faith. So this is a whole lot of precedent for understanding that there are always false professors who look like they're Christians. Always those who look like they've been bought by Christ and yet they have not been saved. Peter is saying, listen, there will be false prophets, false teachers who are among you who secretly introduce destructive heresies. That should be enough to show show who they are. But they deny the master who bought them by their very lives, by their very words, by how they carry themselves shows that while they may claim to be part of the faith, they are denying the very fact of that. And so according to the context and according to analogy of the faith, we can understand just what this text is saying. Just what it's saying. It's not saying they were saved at all. It's not saying that Jesus dies and pays for the sin of and and redeems those whom are never saved. It's not saying that at all. It's saying that these false teachers just appear that way. It's a phenomenon that we see sadly, far too many times in Scripture or in the church. Now turn, if you will, over to second or to Hebrews. Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2. Take one last verse and then we'll be done. Hebrews chapter 2. <clears throat> because once again, here is another verse. It causes difficulty when we think about this whole idea of a particular atonement. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9 says, But we do see him, talking about Jesus, who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, Jesus, 
because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. It caused a lot of difficulty. Because someone might say, well, see, since Christ tasted death for everyone, then there is no one for whom he did not taste death. And if there is no one for whom he did not taste death, then every person who has ever been created, Christ died for. And you can understand the logic. You can understand the thinking. You can understand how someone would get there. But is that what this verse is teaching? Well, again, we have to remember that everyone is one of those terms that carries a universal idea, but is limited in its scope by context, limited in its universality by the very context in which it is placed in Scripture. So we have to be careful with that term and let context determine its scope. Is it a universal reality or is it limited in the sense that I could say to my wife tonight when I go to pick her up, hey, everybody came tonight. Now I can either mean that in a universal sense that everybody that I ever know from all time came or I can mean a whole lot of people came. So even in our own language, we, we use a context to determine even these universal terms. So we have to be careful when we look at the scope. So look at what the context is for this verse. Notice first in verses 6 through 8. We'll just start in five. For he, that is God, did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. So now we, we know what he's talking about. He's talking about what is to come, the, the future, right? We're, we're, God didn't subject the world to come to angels, right? But one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Now the writer of Hebrews is talking about the future world. And he wants us who is reading this to remember that God has promised to put the rule of the world under the saved. Right? There's coming a time when Christ is going to come to rule, and we are going to return with Christ, and we are going to rule in the sense of be rulers over the world with Christ. Right? We are ruling through the rule of Jesus Christ. And then secondly, in verse 10, It says that God is bringing, notice, many sons to glory, right? For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory. In other words, Jesus' suffering and Jesus' death brings in the kingdom and it's actually effective to bringing in sons to glory. Not everybody to glory, but sons to glory. And then third, verse 11, those who are brought to glory are referred to, notice, as brothers. For those, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are 
from one father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. In other words, those who are the beneficiaries of his death, the beneficiaries of being in the kingdom with Christ are identified here in Hebrews chapter 2 as being family, family with Christ, brothers of Christ. And then when you think about that, fourthly, family is described even more clearly in verse 13. Verse 13 is described as those who are given to Christ. Notice, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Once again, the scope of everyone in verse 10 or in verse 9 is honed down by context to speak of a certain group of people. And so here we are reminded once again of the elective grace of God to choose before the foundation of the world a people for Him to save. A people, as we have seen, who are from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, who would be called by His grace, justified by His declaration, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, and ultimately we will be glorified. Why? All because of the death of Jesus Christ. All because of the atonement. All because Christ came and accomplished in time what had been decreed before the foundation of the world. So in all of these, all of these texts, all of these three, and there's others, we could look at others, we could go through probably 10 more, but there are others. But I just wanted to give you a taste in the New Testament of these things. In all of these texts, the reality is the same. Jesus Christ accomplished through his death the redemption and the reconciliation and the propitiation for each and every person whom God has chosen to save and no others. No others. It is not universal. The death of Christ does not simply make salvation possible for all people. It actually saves those whom He has chosen before the foundation of the world. Now, we don't know who those are. We don't get that privilege to know who those are. God knows who those are, and God has told us the means by which God saves them is the gospel, and we are commanded then to go and to share the gospel with all men. God carries out His sovereign plan to give His Son a bride, the church, the people of God who will be gathered to Him one day out of a out of a band of humanity lost, and yet we didn't deserve to be chosen, and God chose us and saved us. Christ accomplished it all and carried it out so that we would be sitting here tonight believing in Jesus Christ. What an amazing reality. So there is no sense, at least in my understanding of Scripture, by which God, in any way, through Christ, offered an atonement for all people of all time, only for those whom he's chosen to save. It is a definite atonement. It is a definite atonement. So the death of Christ didn't simply make salvation possible. It actually saved those whom he chose. 
I hope that's helpful. I hope it's, it's been helpful. I hope over the time it hasn't stretched your mind in such a way that you just go, well, I don't know how to do this. I don't know what to believe anymore. I hope it's challenged you and showed you from Scripture that the Bible, this is what the Bible teaches and maybe helped you in a Bible study and, and tried to think through how to think through some of these difficult passages so that you can come out with an understanding in that way. And there are other views that, that you will read in, 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 script, or I mean in uh, theology books and these kind of things of others who have come to different conclusions based upon things, and you have to argue with their arguments. You have to say, well, I just don't see that. I don't see where you came up with that. I don't see why you came up with that. In fact, here's the reasons why I land where I land. And I hope I've shown you some of that as we've gone on. So I appreciate that. Well, let's close in a word of prayer and we'll, we'll ask God to just kind of massage these things into our heart and allow us to be comforted by them. Father, we thank you for all that you do. We thank you for your wisdom. We thank you for how it challenges our thinking. Lord, we certainly do not understand everything that you are. Even in these things, there are things we do not fully yet understand. And yet you have given us your spirit, wisdom that we can study your word, look at it, be challenged by it, and come to the conclusions based upon simply what your word says. We don't want to twist scripture. We don't want to make it say something that is comfortable to our own biases. We just want to let it live where it lives. And if that challenges our thinking, if that causes us to, to readjust our theological stances based upon the truth, realizing that maybe we've just uh, been comfortable in a, in a wrong understanding because we like being comfortable. Now help us to be challenged by that and help us to turn from it if we need to, always siding with the truth of your word and nothing else. We thank you for that. We ask your blessing upon each one here in Jesus' name. Amen.